the law and the Ten Commandments, and this is the second of a sort of precursor to that series. And I, uh, I love this psalm, and uh, this is God's word to you today. We'll pray after I read, and then we'll um, discuss it for a little bit. So this is what God's word says to you this morning. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard, and their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs runs its course with joy." Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether, more to be desired than they than gold, even much fine gold, and sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors, declare me innocent from hidden faults? Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Uh, It's our practice at Redeemer to to spend some moments in silence before I preach. And in that moment, in that space, we're, we're praying that we would come alive to God, that we would understand that he's here with us and that we would not just talk about God, but speak with him, live with him, commune with him. Uh, find him to be beautiful. And so that's what we're going to uh, do in that moment of silence. And then we will talk about that text. So let's pray. Father, now we uh, want you to speak to us. We want you um, to open the door uh, because we want to knock and that you uh, would be on the other side. We want to seek and find you. And so, Lord, help us uh, by the Spirit to inch our way towards you, to open up uh, our eyes, as the psalm says, that our eyes would be enlightened by your word, that our souls would be revived Um, that we would be found um, fearing you and that that would put us on the path to life because we are clean. And Lord, we know that this is only done through the Redeemer, uh, through where this psalm points to and to who it points to. And so, Lord, we exist in your name. Uh, We exist because you allow us to. And so come now. Your servants are listening. Um. I went to uh, Houston, Texas once and saw the display of an artist that I didn't know much about. His name is Mark Rothko. 
If you know anything about Rothko, uh, it doesn't seem like much is going on with his paintings. They're just large, rectangular uh, blocks of color, essentially. And I went into this octagonal building, and uh, again, I didn't know anything about him. I didn't know anything about his work. And there are like eight very massive uh, purplish, blackish canvases. Um, and I was like, okay, I, I'm, I'm assuming there's more going on here than I'm aware of. And, I, and I'm sitting there for a little bit. And I usually have to get Sarah to like explain modern art to me because I don't get it. And uh, then I, I, after sitting there for about 10 or 15 minutes, um, something happened to me. I felt this uh, sensation that was so overwhelming and deep that I had to like leave. It was very, very heavy. And I later learned that this happens to people a lot um, when they experience Rothko's paintings, when they observe his paintings. It wasn't, I wasn't just the only one that felt that. But I think if I could articulate that emotion, I would say it, it was almost like it broke my heart open. And it, I think what was revealed to me was this sort of awe, like this awful beauty that was so powerful that I could not sit in it and I had to leave. Um, that's how Psalm 19 talks about the manner in which God reveals himself to people. What this text shows us is that you actually intuitively know more about God than you think you do. That something has and is currently being revealed to you and it is the beauty and weightiness of who God is and that it's happening all the time. C.S. Lewis called this psalm the most beautiful psalm in the whole Psalter. And he said it's probably the most beautiful poem in all the world. And he was like a Greek. He studied Greek poetry. And so he kind of knew what he was talking about. Now, we're, again, we're in a series called The Law or The Ten Commandments. And uh, my guess is when you think about the law or the Ten Commandments, you're like not like, oh, my, oh, my gosh, this is so beautiful. You know, you're not just like blown away by how pretty it is. But this psalm shows us that it actually is. We just have not sat in it long enough. And it, it says that uh, when you do, when you study, when you meditate on it, um, it can speak to you deeper than anything because God has immediate and direct access to the human heart at all times. And he can blow you away because of its beauty. And that's what this psalm evokes in, a, in us if we will sit in it together. And that's what I want to do with you right now, today, for like the next 30 minutes. Um, it's meant to be entered and it affects you and expose you um, a lot of times the psalm is used to like prove God's existence. The church has done that for a long time, but I think it's, it's meant to be kind of uh, entered. And so we're going we're gonna to enter it uh, through these three points. Beauty in nature, the beauty in truth, and the beauty in the broken human heart. So verses one through six, uh, beauty in nature. The first section of the psalm, what's being spoken and declared is this thing called God's glory. Glory uh, has the connotation of weightiness and things that matter, things that uh, get your attention. 
So God's glory is described as his creative handiwork in verse 1. His artistic creations. And what an artist does is that he or she evokes beauty or order or emotion that resonates with themselves and with other people. And God's creative work gets our attention simply because it's that captivating. The strange part about this, though, is that this way of God's communicating is nonverbal. It says that there's no part of the world that can hide from God's speech, but you don't hear his speech with your ears. Verses two through four. You see it. And David is saying that the the guy who wrote this song, David saying that nature, the creation just by itself, by just by existing is revelatory of God. It's revealing something about God and it's part of how you know he's there. So, for instance, if I were to write a book, I, as the author, am not in the book itself generally, but that story that I wrote reveals something about me as the author on almost every page. Artists are typically hidden from their work, but yet very present at the same time. And God says all creation, human beings included, are creations of his artistic genius, which is what you are by just being. So everything is naturally showing and telling us something of God. That's why we started out reading Psalm 119 says that everything is God's servant. The idea is that all things are an extension of and dependent on God at all times. And whether we admit it or not, he is distinctly known by everything that ever existed. Another example, uh, my wife, Sarah, has a very particular type of script. They should make a typeface out of it and call it Sarah Koenig. Um, but if I, if I were to see something that Sarah wrote, I immediately know it's from her. If she wrote me a letter or if she, you know, writes anything on a piece of paper, um, she doesn't have to sign it or notify me that it was from her. It just is distinctly hers. And in the same way, that's what you are with God. That's what the sky is by just being a sky. A tree, by just being a tree, everything that exists can't not reveal God. This, by the way, is one of the most challenging things for me to believe about Christianity. Because what it means is that there's no honest agnosticism. There's no one who can actually say, yeah, I just don't know. What this passage is saying is like, no, you do know. And you know that it's this God. That's a hard one for me. And this knowledge is so pervasive. It's so all encompassing. Verses three through five. And it's so bold that it's like a husband leaving his honeymoon chamber for the first night of his marriage. It's like an athlete who runs super, super fast and wins. And there's this sense in how God reveals himself. There's this sense of joyful conquering and delight in how he chooses to make himself known. Like that's the point. And nothing can hide from him. Like nothing can hide from the sun's heat. 
So this is what theologians have called general revelation. This is how we generally know that there is a God. But how do we make sense of it? This is how. Imagine if I exited the museum and Rothko, Mark Rothko was like right outside the door and he was there to like calm me down. He's like, okay, it's okay. Uh, You're going to be all right. I painted to evoke that feeling inside of you that you're feeling right now. And what I wanted to convey to you is that wars are terrible. World War II, especially, because he was Latvian and of Jewish descent. And he was writing, or he's painting in the aftermath of how terrible World War II was. And that art, the artist could say to me, What you're experiencing was my intended design. Now, that's what our next section of the psalm is doing. That it's, it's describing that what you're experiencing is actually uh, true and actually puts form to what you are experiencing in, in creation. How do we make sense of it all? And we're going to look at that in section, uh, the verses 7 through 11, under the beauty of the truth of the law. So what does the law do? And you'll notice in that section, verses 7 through 11, that there are various words used to describe the same thing in this, in this section. So synonyms. So you got precepts, testimonies, commandments, law. Um, these are things that are all referring to God's revealed will. This is how God reveals his will in creation, his particular specific will. And other words are like covenant, Torah, uh, the word. And so... What does his revealed will do? Look at the text in seven. It says that the law revives the soul, giving life back to your spirit. That's what it does when you read the word. That's why we preach from the word and that it's not just some like opinion of another person, that this is where the power and the life is in God's law. 7a, his testimony is sure and certain, making wise the fool. 8, his precepts are right, giving joy to the, to the heart. That word for right is, uh, actually means straight edge, and it's the standard by which everything else is measured by. The commandments of the Lord are, uh, the word is barar, creative or pure, enlightening the eyes. And this is my favorite one in verse 9. The fear of the Lord. So when the Lord is the dominant thing to your reality, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. And oh, how I would love to talk for 30 minutes about the Levitical system and how it puts you on the continuum to path, uh, the path of life and death. But um, I'm not going to bore you with that. But I would like to sometime if you want to get coffee. Um, the judgments of the Lord are true. And completely righteous. And if I could summarize what this section is talking about. Is that this is what the law does to human beings. Um, When a person sees the beauty of God's revealed will in creation. The beauty of his truth. What it does to you is that it makes you come become fully alive. To him and to yourself. And it becomes possible, this is the bizarre thing, it becomes possible to desire it more than money. It becomes possible to desire it more than the delicacies of this world. Honey, back in the day, for us, it'd be like really good food. Um, 
And they warn us. The word warns us to keep us in line with God's design for us. And then when we keep them, there is a prize at the end. There's a reward. So you look up at the sky and you say, there must be a God. Uh, Here's how one of my friends says it. How how do we know that uh, there must be a God? He says, it's kind of like looking up at the clouds and you're you're like making out shapes of the clouds. You know, have you guys ever done this before with somebody? You're like, that looks like, you know, a turtle or that looks like a dinosaur. Um, God's revealed will is like I it's like he came down. He said, I actually made that cloud to look exactly like an elephant, you know. Um, And so what you're seeing is accurate. Look, when God speaks to us through the word, uh, he does so in each age, it's firmly fixed in the heavens. And it's unbiased. Because it's his interpretation of what he wants us to know about himself. And it's not our interpretation of what we think he's like or what we'd like to think he's like. And some of you in here, I know you're like, I, you know, I believe in God, um, but I just can't believe in certain parts of Scripture. Like it's just it's just too against uh, what I think is right. And, and that is part of the beauty of truth, that it's not tainted by your preconceived notions or biases. That's that's what we want nowadays. Right. I mean, how many how many of us if we if we could say I just want a, a source that isn't biased. Like, tell it to me straight. And the problem with that, even even with us, is that we are trapped in our own minds and in our own time. That we can't understand stuff in a non-biased way. And so God has to tell it to us straight. And what our culture and time finds offensive about the law and the Bible, other cultures don't in the world currently. And in the future... Those cultures are going to find something different to be offended by. And it's very, very prideful to say that 21st century modern, the modern view of truth is the right one because it's going to change and evolve. And so the question becomes, how can I listen to God more than I listen to the voice that's in my own head? How can I listen to God over against my own opinions How can I listen to God over against just the strongest personality in my life? How can I think that the law is actually better than money or food? And here's where I really want to drill down, because this is where the psalm goes. Because I think you, you gain a deeper understanding of how you can get there through understanding your own heart, specifically its brokenness. So point three, the beauty in the broken human heart, verses 12 through 14. I mean, let's be honest, like, do you really think that the Bible is sweet? Do you think that uh, it is possible to delight in the Bible, in the scriptures, more than you delight in stuff like sex, stuff like money, uh, stuff like comfort? Um, I'm speaking to you as if you're the type of person that you really, I mean, let's just be completely real. Um, You'd rather unload the dishwasher than read your Bible. Okay, let's say you're there. Um, Is it possible that somebody like that 
can actually change and begin to desire God more than anything else in the world. This psalm tells you how. Verse 12. Who, and it's, and it's very strange how you get there. Who can discern his errors or declare me innocent of hidden faults? Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. This is what that verse is saying. This two verses is saying that we don't even understand ourselves or what's inside of us. That we are a mystery to ourselves. And you may struggle, you know, like I do. You may struggle with anger. You may struggle with lust. You may struggle with comparison. And those are obvious things to you and to other people observing you. But what these verses are saying is that there are things living inside of me. Hidden things. That would rule and dominate me if it weren't for God's intervention. That's a hard one for us. And I want to say something plainly. And if you will allow me a few minutes to defend the thought. uh, The beauty of God, the beauty, especially of the hard stuff in your life and in Scripture that are hard to focus on. That you don't want to focus on. Is the exact center for how you convert to Christianity. And how you grow in your knowledge of God and your love for him. The stuff that's hard to go to is the center for how you will find God to be beautiful, for how you will learn to have a taste for him, like the sweetness of honey. Here's what I mean. Sarah and I have a rule for, we have a law in our home for our son Lazarus, and it's that he must hold our hand when he is walking near a busy street. Um, Now, what if he went to school tomorrow and one of his friends said, you know, your parents make you hold their hand when you walk near a street. I don't have to hold my parents hand. That's weird. Um, And you can see, you know, the, the thought gets planted in my son's mind. You know, what if my parents are trying to keep something back from me? What if what what would happen if I didn't hold their hand and I let it go and I ran? And let's say the next day. He wiggles out of our hand and a car zooms by and it it almost, you know, hits him and he almost has an accident. I run over and he sees the fear and love in my eyes and I see the fear and love in his eyes. And we have this moment. What does he learn in that process? He learns that that rule is in place because I love him, not because I'm trying to limit his freedom. He learns it. Now, this is real weird, and this is how it works in the human heart. We learn God's goodness. We learn to trust him through the exact areas in which we broke his law. That the gospel becomes most sweet where we are the most broken. This is how God prevents presumptuous sin from having dominion over us. You know what presumptuous sin is? That we presume to know what's best. And when that happens, God sometimes in his grace lets us have life just a little bit the way that we want it. So that we will know how bitter life is without him. 
Paul talks about this in Romans 7. He says that when sin teams up with the law, what it produces is guilt and shame and depression and ultimately death. But thanks be to God that when you die to that which held you captive, you come alive in the spirit. You become who you are. You become, well, somebody who likes the law. Here's how this plays itself out. When you feel in your heart of hearts, there is literally nothing else I would rather do than obey God because it's simply better. It's the top choice. Holding the hand is better than running without boundaries around a busy street. It's better. Think about your life. Aren't there things that you've gone after? Even when you're little and get old, same stuff, it just morphs. Aren't there things that you've gone after and you saw the wreckage and futility of it? Maybe you saw the danger of it and you knew in that moment that God's warnings were actually really great and kind. And you begin to want it. There's a, there's a psalm that says, when you begin to trust God in this way, that you become like a child that weans itself from his, from his mother, but stays close to him of your own initiative. That growth comes when my son Lazarus sees the danger of the street and stays within the boundaries because he wants to. Because he trusts me. Look, is there anything in your life that you do in obedience to the scriptures simply because it's the sweetest thing you've ever experienced? That's where God is pushing you towards. That's the goal. That's when you become free as a human being because it speaks to you most deeply. He has immediate access to your heart. And if he created you, he knows how you operate and he knows what turns you on. And he knows what speaks to you most deeply. And he said, look, if, if you want that from him, if you want that from him, God gives you what you want out of him. He says, seek and you will find me. Knock and I will open the door. If you don't want it, that's fine, too. He leaves he leaves you that freedom. But I believe part of what the psalm is saying is that maybe the reason that you have not found the sweetness of God's rules is because you don't think sin is sin. I have a dear friend who says that I, I think one of the most destructive things that's ever been taught in the world is this concept of original sin. And in the same breath, he'll express so much pain with how broken the world is. And I, I find sin the way it's described in the Bible. You know that word transgression? It means rebellion against your creator. It's a personal affront on the one who loved and created you the most. And what sin seeks to do is it seeks to get us to devalue one another, to dehumanize one another through division and isolation and fear and violence. And the teaching of sin in Christianity is the only thing accurate and comprehensive enough to describe what's going on in the world and inside my very heart. It's really accurate. And so, what is the answer? The answer is verse 14. You need a redeemer. I need a redeemer. 
And how the Redeemer works is that God zeroes in on those places of the brokenness which the law exposes. And he makes us watch and wait on how God is going to reconcile us back to himself and back to other people. That's what he does. And this typically happens through the exposure of the exact thing that we've been avoiding in our lives and in Scripture. But the beautiful part is, if you will let the law expose you, if you will let God expose you, and you sit in that with other people, and you let yourself be loved in that exposure, that is what turns the human heart on forever. That is where the beauty of the broken human heart will capture you. And you convert. And you stay converted. This is what it means to be acceptable in the sight of God. That God uses the places of our deepest sin and struggle to do his greatest work. Y'all have heard it in your lives so many times. A seat of my own. It's good news of how God subverts evil itself, pushes evil against itself to renew and restore and reconcile. You know, redemption means to buy something back, that something's been bought back. And this is how God changes people. He makes you the most obedient where you were the most disobedient. And he makes your heart come alive where it was the most broken. And so here's my encouragement to you. And I'm speaking uh, to the church and, and to those outside the church Please don't do away with the concept of sin. Uh, Don't avoid the places in your life or in Scripture that you can barely stomach or talk about. I'm not saying that you always have to go there and that you have to stay there all the time. But what I'm saying is when they come and when it's exposed in you or when the places in Scripture that are hard to read come across, you you come across them, don't avoid it. Because there you will find Jesus and there he will change you into somebody who delights in his law and delights in his word. That's what his revelation does. That's how he reveals himself to human beings. The beauty in nature, the beauty of truth, and the beauty of the broken human heart are seen most clearly in Jesus Christ, our rock and our redeemer. Let's pray and continue in worship. Father, we do thank you for uh, the the weightiness of your word. And if we just sit in it for just a little bit, oh, um, it's like, it's just heavy in a good way. And it exposes us in a way that uh, feels so eternal and that we were made for. And there are certain aspects of what you call us to do that drive that